Dear Father, please bless this time. We are in your care as we study your word and we seek your knowledge and your wisdom and your counsel and your direction. We ask, Father, that you would grant us those things now as we sit at your feet. In Jesus' name, amen. Many scholars have observed that the book of Genesis can be divided neatly into two parts. The first part of the book runs through the chapters we've already covered, chapters 1 through 11. And in that first part of the book of Genesis, we see the origins of the universe, the origins of the earth itself, of mankind, and of all nations and languages. It explains the origins of sin. It explains why we have things like hate and murder. It establishes the problem, ultimately, of man's rebellion against God. That's what we've done so far in the book of Genesis in the first 11 chapters or so. The second part of the book, which runs from chapters 12 through 50, covers the origins of the nation of Israel, beginning with Abraham, who we'll start to study later this morning. And it explains the outworking of God to fulfill his promise to bring a Messiah. And it shows how Israel as a people became the mechanism for God to deliver that promise, that promised redeemer. Another way you could look at the two parts of Genesis are that in the first part, Men are seen to be losing ground steadily over the time. They receive curses following the fall in the garden. They receive a displacement from the land, first from the garden itself, and then later as the flood takes their land from them, and again after the confusion in Babel. Along the way, they lose privileges. They lose connection with God. They lose the intimacy that they once had with God, being expelled from his presence as a result of the fall. Now, in the second part of Genesis... Everything turns. Men are now receiving blessing. They're receiving visitations from God. We're going to see that start with Abram, of course. They then receive promises to receive a land, an inheritance, a posterity, promises to one day be in God's kingdom. All these things now become the second half of the story of Genesis as God moves to correct and redeem men from the first half of the book. So today we stand at the juncture of those two parts. We're finishing the first half today as we come to the end of chapter 11. We put to bed the God's plan to redeem men from that error, from that sin now starts to take form in the name of the man Abram. So in the first half where, where we've seen the development of nations and languages and peoples, now as we conclude in this last part of chapter 11, we're going to examine the final toldot or genealogy of the first part of Genesis, that is the line of the promised seed through Shem. And Shem's line is going to connect us now from Noah's family to the next major character in the story of God's plan of redemption, that being Abram, as I said. So even as God has confused language and as he scattered mankind, his promise, his promise to redeem men, to deliver a, a redeemer, the seed that he promised in chapter 3 of Genesis, that promise is still Intact, And it's working through the families now of Noah and afterward. So specifically today, we pick up with the genealogy of Shem and the promise that his family now delivers to us into the next installment of the story. Look with me now in chapter 11, verse 10. These are the records of the generations of Shem. Shem was 100 years old and became the father of Arkbashad two years after the flood. 
And Shem lived 500 years after he became the father of Arkbashad, and he had other sons and daughters. Arkbashad lived 35 years and became the father of Shelah. And Arkbashad lived 403 years after he became the father of Shelah, and he had other sons and daughters. Shelah lived 30 years and became the father of Eber. And Shelah lived, and Shelah lived 403 years after he became the father of Eber, and he had other sons and daughters. Eber lived 34 years and became the father of Peleg. And Eber lived 430 years after he became the father of Peleg, and he had other sons and daughters. Peleg lived 30 years and became the father of Reu. And Peleg lived 209 years after he became the father of Reu, and he had other sons and daughters. Reu lived 32 years and became the father of Serug. And Reu lived 207 years after he became the father of Serug, and he had other sons and daughters. Serug lived 30 years and became the father of Nahor. And Serug lived 200 years after he became the father of Nahor, and he had other sons and daughters. Nahor lived 29 years and became the father of Terah. And Nahor lived 119 years after he became the father of Terah, and he had other sons and daughters. Terah lived 70 years and became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Well, here we find ourselves with another list of names and ages and father and son relationships, one of the often lamented genealogies of Genesis. But I think if there is a, a concern or a uh, lack of interest in genealogies among Bible students, it's simply because we haven't gained the proper perspective on how they fit into the overall narrative of Genesis. In looking at this list of names, we can make three observations concerning this list, and in those three observations, come to understand its purpose and its value in the text of Scripture. First, here we find ten generations listed between Shem and Abram. And just like all genealogies in Genesis, the point of the list is to trace the seed line. One of the reasons we have genealogies is to trace that promised seed line that God is following to conclusion in his son Christ. In this case, we're tracing between Shem and Abram, since Abram is the next major character in the line of the promise. He's the next patriarch that we will examine in the text of Scripture. But curiously, when you look at this genealogy and when you compare it, for example, to the previous genealogy, one of the previous genealogies in chapter 5, chapter 5 also includes 10 generations between the beginning of that list and the end of that list, between Adam and Noah. Now, that similarity is not coincidental. God has purposed to place 10 names between these two respective pairs of men. And he's done so to emphasize his hand and his authority in all these outcomes. The number 10 in Scripture is a number that has come to mean testimony in the sense of a testimony to God's faithfulness to his promises. That's how God has chosen to use that number at times in symbolic meaning. So how appropriate is it that God waits 10 generations in each case before he begins the next step of his plan of redemption, before the story begins again with the next man? By that number 10, God is communicating to you and to I and to all who've ever read the scriptures, of course, that it was by his purpose, by his hand and by his plan that there would be 10, no more, no less, 10 generations separating each of these important men as Moses captures their story in the book of Genesis. 
And 10 is a testimony to God's faithfulness to his promises. And in the very fact that there's a difference of 10 in each case, we're hearing God say to us through that number, I am faithful. I am keeping this promise and I am doing so in my own timing. So the next time you wonder if God is still at work in your life, still working out promises he's made, still there with you as you walk in Christ, if there's been a time in your life when you don't seem to hear him answering your prayers or when it, is, it appears as if you're on your own. I want you to remember that God waited hundreds of years, even thousands of years in the case of some of these genealogies before he begins to act anew as he ensures that he keeps his promises. And he does that delay. He causes that gap so that the number 10 would be evident in the scriptures for us. And in that, we would have further confirmation that God is in control and he's at work. God's patience, remember, exceeds our own by far. And yet we will find patience by coming to an understanding and by recognizing God's pattern from his word. That's why study of God's word is so important to our walk as Christians. It is the the mechanism by which God uh, shines the light of his purpose and his character and his nature and his promises into our life. God moves in deliberate and purposeful ways, and yet all the while he is in control, bringing all things to good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So that's the first observation we can make as we take a glance at this list. There are ten generations separating Shem from Abram, and in those ten generations we see evidence of God's work in keeping his promises. Then secondly, the overlapping nature of the lives of these men assures us and can assure us that the history recorded here in Genesis was easily and reliably passed along from one generation to later generations and preserved all the way until Moses recorded it as God directed. If you look at that list and you look down some of the ages that are given for the men on that list, you realize we're still seeing men here living very long lives, though the rate, uh, the length of life is diminishing quite rapidly, as we discussed back when we looked in chapter 9 at the effects of, of one family coming through the flood. But when I go all the way back to Adam and look at the lives of these men from Adam down to today, to this point in the, in the story of Genesis, to chapter 11, we can find four men whose lives overlapped And through just those four men, we can trace all human history from this point back to Adam. From Adam to Lamech to Shem and then to Jacob, you have four men whose lives overlapped at least for some period of time. Each man in that that list was still alive when the next man came along and was himself an adult. In fact, Noah is an example. He lived until Abraham's father, Terah, was alive. Shem, who Noah's son, and Eber outlived Terah, Abram's father. And Eber outlived Abraham, as an example. That shows you the degree to which the knowledge and the history of mankind all the way back to the garden could have easily been transferred through the family lines as history and fact so that it could be known and recorded later as Moses was given direction. So the second observation we make out of this list is that these lives are still long and in the history represented here in the pages of Genesis is a history we can rely on, not the least of all because it's God's word, but it was all easily recorded and passed along. 
And then finally, the list that we just studied of names emphasizes the separating effect of God's seed promise, of how God's promise has the effect of separating men one from another. As we discussed last week, God is, is in the business of selecting who will receive his grace. This is God's plan. It's been his nature to do so from the, it's been his pattern to do so ever since the beginning. And God's seed promise is a grace that he elects to bring to certain lines of men, but not to others, as is his prerogative as, as God. And that choice, that purposeful choosing of one to carry the promise above another, is evident in the outworking of the events of these men's lives. And it's reflected in the genealogies here in Genesis. And let me give you an example. For example, back in chapter 10, uh, the genealogy in that chapter accounts for names that were not to receive his promise. If we go back and look at the genealogy that we discussed in chapter 10, we notice that the genealogy uh, covers Japheth and Ham principally, and in doing so, it gives us a conclusion to their stories so that we understand how their lives came to an end. But they are not the ones to carry the seed promise forward. And therefore, these families are destined to disappear from the pages of Scripture because they don't matter to the ultimate story, to the ultimate purpose of why Moses wrote Genesis. But I want you to take particular note of one family, the family of Eber, to see, what I'm, to see an illustration of what I'm talking about. Eber was the man, as you may remember from last week, who gave name to the Hebrews. Hebrew comes from Eber. And in chapter 10, we're told he had two sons. He had Peleg and he had Joktan. And in that chapter, we're told that Peleg was born in the days when the earth was divided, which we now know refers to the dividing of men at the Tower of Babel, which is explained at the beginning of chapter 11. But the narrative of Genesis gives higher meaning, higher purpose to that fleeting reference once we take into account both chapter 10 and chapter 11. And here's what I mean. In the chapter 10, the descendants of Noah are traced, but they are also traced a second time in chapter 11. In chapter 10, we see Eber's family divided into two people, Peleg and Joktan. Chapter 10 tells the rest of Joktan's story, but chapter 11 tells the story of Peleg. In chapter 10, Joktan's family is traced to the conclusion of that chapter, and then the very next thing we see is the story of the Tower of Babel. It is as if Moses has taken the dividing that took place in Peleg's day, and he has reflected it in the telling of the genealogies from the two men in Eber's family. First, as he was doing with Japheth and with Ham, he addresses the life of Joktan, the man who will not carry the seed promise. And he explains that man's genealogy to conclusion at the end of chapter 10. And then Moses proceeds to talk to the issue of Babel, of the rebellion of men, of how all of those genealogies led to a group of people seated at the tower and seeking after their own fame and pride. And then to flip the story over, Moses then comes back to the genealogy of, of Noah's family, of Shem, but now, from Eber, he traces down the line of the seed, the promised line, through Peleg. And where chapter 11 concludes at the bottom of that genealogy is the story of the man Abram. It's a clear statement in the way Moses has assembled these two chapters. The statement that there are two sides to humanity. There are two kinds of people in the world. There are those who are 
moving in the line of the seed promise according to Genesis, and then there are those who are excluded from the line of the seed, and they have their respective outcomes. The message would seem clear. God has divided the earth in Peleg's day in more ways than just one. He divided the nations by confusing the language, but he was also dividing Eber's family. Joktan's line led to the tower, while Peleg's line leads to the Hebrews and to Abraham. In the storyline of Genesis, it is God created, man polluted, and God cleansed. And since God is the one fixing man's mistakes, God may take any route he chooses in doing so. That is his prerogative. And the story of Genesis is the tracing of that route through certain men and apart from others. Today, God continues to work in exactly the same way. The outworking of God's promise to redeem men from sin has reached its fulfillment in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And now the question is no longer whether you are part of the seed line or not, as it was in Genesis, for the seed line now has reached fulfillment and it no longer runs through the birth and death process of human beings. Instead, the question now has become, are you in Christ? Are you in the one who fulfills the promise? Are you grafted into that line or not? Do you remember when Jesus himself said that he did not come for the purpose of unifying mankind? It's recorded in Luke chapter 12, verse 51. Jesus says, do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you no, but rather division. For from now on, five members in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. If Jesus came to divide and not to unify on this issue of who we are, on the issue of who he is, then the only question worth asking today is, Whose side are we on? Are we with the line of the seed promise in our hearts? Are we with the Seths of the world, with Noah and Shem and Eber and Peleg and Abram and all the way down to Jesus himself? Are we in Christ? Or are we still the the one who was born in Adam's sin, the one who came into this world with the rebellious, sinful heart that all men come into the world with? Are we still on the side of the rebels? Are we still like Cain, like Lamech, like Canaan? Like Nimrod? Like Joktan? We only get those two options because there is no third category. And our family tree divides. Our life itself, our spirit divides on the question of who we say Jesus is. As Jesus himself said concerning that question, Luke 8, verse 20, it was reported to him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wishing to see you. But he answered and said to them, my mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. So now we turn the corner. We've seen now in the genealogy that finishes chapter 11 that there are ten names as it testifies to God's faithfulness to continue the seed line. That the men in these families, in these genealogies, are still living lengths of time long enough to ensure that the truth of what has come before them will be passed along and recorded properly. And we've noted that God is in the business of dividing and separating and showing that his 
privilege and His grace will fall on some and not others, but in all cases He will remain faithful to bring about what He has promised. And so with that background and with all that has transpired, with men having come from a position of glory and privilege and honor in the presence of God through a fall into sin, and now from rebellion after rebellion after rebellion, here we find the turning point in the story of Genesis. As we leave part one at this very last piece of chapter 11 and turn into part two, read with me in Genesis 11:27. Now these are the records of the generations of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his birth in Ur of the Chaldeans. Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Sarai was barren. She had no children. This is the central genealogy, or the central told out of the book of Genesis. This is the center of them all. There are five genealogies recorded prior to this one I just read, and there will be five more after it. And this one sits directly in the center of all of these genealogies. It serves not only as the turning point in the story of Genesis, but many scholars have observed this is the most important of the genealogies in the book of Genesis. Because it is the moment in which God's outworking of his promise to bring a redeemer begins to manifest itself in specific terms in the lives of certain people. Where before he had been simply carrying the promise forward till he was ready to begin the work, now the work begins in earnest. In the name of this man or in the family of this man, Terah and his sons. Specifically, of course, the son Abram. This genealogy introduces Abram as the first of the patriarchs of Israel and with the others that you know already, I'm sure Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we always say them as a threesome now, it's so common to do so. Each of these men, though, will receive in their own life greater and greater revelation concerning the promise that God is working through their lives in bringing a Redeemer and more than that, bringing a people and bringing a nation that will have at its core uh, a knowledge of God, the word of God, the oracles of God, we're told. And then each man in their own life will also receive a small portion of the physical inheritance of the promise made for land or for some kind of earthly privilege. But then again, as we will study, each of these men died without the bulk of those promises fulfilled in their life. Each of them died without having received what God himself promised that they would receive as a part of his covenant with them. Now, because they die having not received these promises, the writer in Hebrews tells us that they are proof, that is proof that they were looking forward to the receiving of those promises, not in this life, but in the next, in the day after they are resurrected and brought back to earth in physical form again, they will expect to see those promises fulfilled. But we'll study that in chapters to come in Genesis. Let's go to the genealogy of Terah now, the first of the patriarchs that we will study in the next in the second half of Genesis, is Abram. He is called the son of Terah. He has two brothers, Nahor and Haran. And his first brother here, Nahor, seems to have been named after his grandfather. That seems like a reasonable guess. While Haran is named after his father's hometown. Because by the time Abram is born, Terah, his father, has moved from their original home in Haran to Ur, which is a city in Mesopotamia. 
And Ur itself is an interesting place. It's a significant city historically. Moses calls it Ur of the Chaldeans, but in reality the Chaldeans didn't occupy this area until at least a thousand years after Abram lived there. And it's probably the case that Moses included this reference to the Chaldeans when he describes the town to help his readership in his day identify the location of Ur from their context. So they would have known the Chaldeans, they would have known where the Chaldeans lived, and so Moses makes that reference to help them. Back at the time of Abram, Ur had a population of uh, roughly 34,000 based on archaeological digs in the area, and it occupied an area of roughly four square miles. But the city's most interesting feature was a city wall that surrounded the city, which was 35 feet thick. And that tells us a couple of things. First, it, it tells us that the city had, had some significant wealth. It had something worth protecting. But then secondly, and most importantly, it reflects the fear and the confusion of the Tower of Babel, having now reached the point where men uh, impart violence upon another, that there is war, there is hatred to the extent that a city must go to those lengths to protect itself from others. It also tells us a little bit about the, the skill with which men may have learned to fight and kill, probably with help from Nimrod from centuries earlier. There's also archaeological evidence that the city had harbors on the Euphrates and traded with other peoples as far away as Africa. But in B.C. 2180, everything changed for Ur. A group of warlike barbarians called Guti descended from the eastern mountains and conquered Ur. They came in and took over the town, and they made life miserable for the inhabitants of Ur and stayed there for nearly a century. And it was only 14 years after they arrived in B.C. 2166 that Terah begins to have his three sons. So Abram and his brothers all grew up in an occupied city, in a city that was under siege from these barbarians. And undoubtedly, that would have given them some additional motivation or interest to leave the city and go back to their ancestral home in Haran. Terah and his son, Abram, were appointed by God to the line of the seed promise. But that doesn't mean they were always faithful followers of God. That's something I think we overlook sometimes, that these two men were, before they knew God, just like the rest of the world. Joshua tells us, in fact, that in his recounting of the story of Abram and how Abram came into the promised land, that there was a time before he arrived in which both Abram and his father, Terah, didn't even know the true God and were, in fact, pagan worshipers. Joshua 24.2, we read this, Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, From ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. So Abraham and Nahor and Haran and their father Terah were men living in Ur, un, without any knowledge of God, without having come to know him, certainly without any awareness of him and with no interest in following him. But God knew them already. In fact, God had already appointed Abram to be who Abram was to become. I'm fond of saying, you'll hear me probably say this more than once in the course of our Genesis study, but Abraham didn't begin as Abraham. He began as a man named Abram, the pagan, idol-worshipping, worldly Abram, 
living in the east, in Mesopotamia, away from the promised land and with no knowledge of God and with no interest in God and no propensity to follow a God he did not know. And out of that obscurity, God plucks this man and brings him to a better place and calls him by a better name and gives him better promises for no reasons other than God's own mercy and grace for his own purposes and for his own glory. That is the God we serve. And that is his pattern. And though we may at times think about our life and about our situation and question how we could ever become the kind of man or woman God would like us to be, we have to keep in mind that even when we are faithless, God is faithful. And he is faithful not because we deserve his faithfulness, but he is faithful because he is true to his own word. And by his word he is measured And by his word, he is glorified and he will be true to it. And so he will be faithful even when we in our flesh are unable to keep the promises and the assurances and the commitments we have made. Because he is interested in turning us into Abraham's as well, though he finds us in the beginning as an Abram. So back in chapter 11, now we learn that Haran, one of Abram's brothers, has a son, a man named Lot. And then the very next verse tells us that Haran dies at a presumably young age, leaving his son, Lot, as an orphan. And this is an interesting detail, but perhaps a bit out of place, you might think, at this stage of the story. But, of course, it becomes an important detail in just the next chapter or so, as we learn that Lot has become a member of Abram's family now, a sort of adopted member because of Haran's death. And he plays a significant role at times in the story of Genesis because of his attachment to Abram. Haran dies while his family is still living in Ur, away from their ancestral home back in Haran. And from there we learn the two other remaining brothers take wives. But then a second curious detail emerges. Now we hear that Abram's wife, the woman he's chosen, Sarai, is barren. And she will not have children or cannot have children. Now Sarah's inability to have Children, her barrenness is the first of 12 obstacles that Abram's going to confront during his life in the story of Genesis. And these obstacles are an important element in the story of Abraham. Moses expects his readers, as he writes Genesis, to understand from the very beginning that Abram is the man through whom God will work in this next stage of his redemptive plan. But then Moses immediately presents us with something that stops the story in its tracks, gives us this reason to pause and say, well, 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 wait a minute here, Moses. If Abram is the next guy in the line of the promise, the line of the seed, the, the family that will go eventually down to Messiah, then how is it that his wife can be barren? That can't work. How can that happen? How can Abram continue the line of a seed with a wife who can't give birth? And we're going to be intrigued to see how Abram overcomes that obstacle. That's Moses' intent to show us these obstacles. Now, looking ahead at some of those other obstacles, we're going to wonder how it is that Abram is going to receive his inheritance, his land, when God directs him to a place that's already filled with kings and peoples and cities and uh, and others who are occupying this land that is supposedly going to become Abram's. And how is Abram going to rescue his son, his only son, the one God said would be the the man who would carry on the line of the promise? That son is supposed to be taken to the top of a mountain and sacrificed. How is the promise going to continue if Abram kills his only son? And on and on and on. There'll be one after another after another of these obstacles in Abram's life. 
And with each obstacle, we'll have an opportunity to ask that same fundamental question. How will Abram work this out? And what we're going to come to find as we study these for each obstacle that Abram faces, we find that his success comes from God as well. God gives Abram the means to overcoming each of these challenges. And in the end, we'll learn that even the obstacles themselves find their source in God. And therefore, they each are put upon Abram as tests of Abram's character and faithfulness. And I'll tell you now, hopefully it won't ruin the end of the story for you, but Abram doesn't always pass these tests. He passes some, but he doesn't all pass them all. But at the end of the day, at the end of the story of Abram, of Abraham, he always stands because God remains true to his promises. And that's the God we serve. A God that is faithful even when we are faithless. A God who is able to make us stand even when we cannot do it so on our own. And a God who is delighting to do so for his own glory. Well, with that, let's finally end the chapter. Verse 31. Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran his grandson and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan. And they went as far as Haran and settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. So we're told at the end of chapter 11 that Terah takes his son Abram and Lot and Sarai out of Ur and heads to the land of Canaan. But they only get about halfway when they reach Haran, and then Terah settles there. Now, while he's there, he dies. And Moses doesn't address in chapter 11 why the family is leaving Ur or what happened to the other brother, Nahor? Why didn't he travel with them? But at the end of the story of Genesis, Moses will have dealt with both of those loose ends in the coming chapters. And in particular, he's going to come very quickly to answering the question concerning why the family left from their home in Ur. Because before we even venture very far into chapter 12, we're going to see the, the reason being given in an interaction between Abram and the Lord. But we don't even have to wait till chapter 12 next week. We can go today into Acts chapter 7, where we see Stephen recounting the history of this story of Abraham and how he came out of Ur. And here's what we hear Stephen saying concerning that account. Verse 2 of chapter 7 in Acts. And he said, Hear me, brethren and fathers, the glory, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haram and said to him, Leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had him move to this country in which you are now living. So Stephen clarifies exactly what was the order of events. There was at first a revelation from God while they were in Ur. That directed them in their movement westward. They stopped for a time in Haran until Terah was dead. And after his passing, God appears a second time and tells Abram it is time to move again. And he directs them finally into the land of Canaan. That will be the story we follow in the coming weeks. Moving from east to west, Abram leaving Mesopotamia, Babylon, headed toward Israel, future Israel, the promised land, bringing his wife, his nephew, and his father with him. The family of the seed promised moving as God directed and the details of this call and the movement of the family, all of that begins to emerge next week and in the coming chapters. 
I hope you're as excited as I am to get into the story of Abram, one of the most famous, one of the most noted stories in all the Bible, and how exciting it has to be to know that we serve a God who makes it his practice to call men just like Abram, to call men and women out of obscurity with the mission now to serve him in newness of life. He does this all the time. He brings men and women from east and sends them west. He rescues us from idol worship and spiritual ignorance and he grants us the privilege of knowing the Creator personally. And he loves us while we are yet still a part of the world, still his enemy, and he makes us an adopted son or daughter in his family. That's the God we serve, the Redeemer. And from our sin... And from our worldliness, he plucks us and he sets us on a journey and he asks us to learn and to serve and to proclaim his name and to glorify him among the nations. That's the God we serve. And it all started, as we see it here today, with one man, Abram. Let's go to prayer. Dear Father, I thank you, Lord, that uh, we had this opportunity to start this study into Abram's life today. And we ask, Father, that from what we've learned in the first 11 chapters, the first part of the book of Genesis would guide us, Father, into a greater appreciation for all that you inspired, for all that you aspired to do in redeeming us and bringing us back to yourself, in doing the hard work of redemption on the cross. All that we know came, Father, from your promises. I pray that we would see it all in new light, having understood better how we came down so far as a people, as, an, as a, how we came down so far from the time in the garden. Thank you, Father, for this encouraging word. In Jesus' name, amen.